From Sandberg Media and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we air part two of our interview with pastor and author Kat Banakis. We discuss her recent book, Bubble Girl, An Irreverent Journey of Faith, which is both a memoir and an introduction to theology. Later on the broadcast, Mary Morrison gives a review of the BBC science fiction series, Orphan Black. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Catherine Cat Banakis. Reverend Banakis is an Episcopal priest in the Chicago area and is the author of the recent book, Bubble Girl, An Irreverent Journey of Faith, published in 2013 by Chalice Press. In addition to her work for the church, Reverend Banakis has had a long career in the nonprofit sector, working as a lobbyist, a financial officer, and a fundraiser. She chronicles those career shifts as part of her book. Reverend Cat Banakis, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you are ordained in the Episcopal Church, but the household in which you grew up, uh, at least from, from the sound of the book, was not a traditional Episcopal household. In fact, it was, it was a household that had many different religious and cultural influences. Could you tell us a little bit about what that house was like, what the home was like? Sure. Uh, I, I grew up in what could, in a very vanilla sense, be called a Christian church-going household. Uh, but that would be the most boring version of the story. My family is many generations Chicago on both sides. My dad's family is Greek Orthodox, and my mother's family is Irish Catholic. And we are the quintessential Ellis Island immigrant experience of people coming through and names modified on the island and then making it to Chicago for work opportunities. And at the time in which my parents married, Theirs was considered a mixed marriage of sorts of these ethnic religious groups coming together of Greek Orthodox and Irish Catholic. And after they were married, uh, they didn't attend church uh, as a couple. I was baptized Catholic. um, And then my mother felt this need that she wanted to get back to church and wanted the her children to be raised in the church. But neither of them liked the other person's church or felt comfortable in it. And so we started attending uh, a Lutheran church as sort of a happy medium. And the thing that actually got us out of uh, going to Catholic churches, and this is um, apocryphal in some ways, but it's worth telling the story. I was a toddler squirming in the pew, and my mother was narrating what was happening up front. And uh, she said, and, and then the priests do this and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, why aren't there any girls up front? And she said, well, in this church, there aren't uh, girls allowed up front. And I said, in other churches, there are. And why she left that loophole for a precocious four-year-old, I'll never know, but she did. And she said, yes, in, in other churches there are. And I looked at her and said, well, why are we here then? 
And of course, I don't remember this story, but this has been told to me. And so my mom uh, began exploring Protestant churches. They ended up at an evangelical Lutheran church. And my dad was in tech sales, and uh, we moved throughout the U.S. and Asia as I was growing up. And as we moved to different places, we ended up always at a Lutheran church. And I think that that was probably as much uh, for the happy medium liturgical tradition as it was that no matter where we lived in the world, there were a bunch of Midwesterners at the Lutheran church. And so there was a, a cultural familiarity there. And when uh, I was in high school, I started pulling back uh, from my religious tradition, uh, in part because of the nascent debates at that time about um, non-heterosexuality that were happening in the church, in part because of really appropriate things that happen as a teenager. Um, and so when I went to college, uh, I, I was really interested in religion, but wrestling with it. And, and you have to fill out a little card um, uh, about your religious affiliation, and it asked um, – how would you describe your relationship to your religious tradition? And I answered belligerent. Uh, and, and I think that that's true. It, 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 my, my experience of um, my relationship to organized religion and to the church has been one of Jacob wrestling for a blessing with the angel in the desert, not of uh, happy fields necessarily. And, and that wrestling has deepened the relationship. Um, after college, I was attending an Episcopal church in Washington, D.C. Um, because it was big and I could be anonymous and, and had a 20s and 30s program, and that's what I wanted. And uh, about the same time that the Episcopal church decided to ordain the first openly gay bishop, um, the Lutheran church decided not to take action on the issue of uh, LGBTQ ordination. And it struck me as such an important rights issue of my age that I decided to vote with my body and to change denominations at that time. Um, I probably think and act and behave as much like a Lutheran as I do like an Episcopalian. Um, my parents and my youngest sister now attend an evangelical covenant church. Uh, my other sister is at a Methodist church. And um, part and parcel to this also is that one of my great-grandmothers was one of the um, original Pentecostals in the Western movement out in California. So we have an incredible hodgepodge of uh, American Caucasian <laughs> religiosity in our house, um, which creates a great tapestry to pull from. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Kat Banakis. Reverend Banakis is an Episcopal priest in the Chicago area and is the author of the recent book, Bubble Girl, An Irreverent Journey of Faith, published in 2013 by Chalice Press. Well, as, as I've been mentioning, your book is, is published by Chalice Press, and we've, we've been lucky to have a, a number of Chalice Press authors on the program, uh, oftentimes in the context of the Young Women's Clergy Project, and uh, one of the questions that I have asked repeatedly of guests uh, and is the experience of being a young woman who is taking on a pastoral role in the church, 
uh, you just mentioned LGBTQ issues, and uh, those are certainly important issues that, that have been part of the political conversation of the church for the past several decades. Mm-hmm. But also an important political conversation for the church has been the role of women. And I wonder, has your experience as a, as a woman in the pastorate been one that has been wholly positive? Have, have you had some points where you, you have felt something like what we might call a glass ceiling? I choose to put myself in situations where I'm welcome. So no doubt there are congregations in the country who would not be uh, open to having a female clergy person. Um, I don't choose to apply to work there. And I chose to be ordained in a tradition that has ordained women uh, since the 1970s and into the 80s. And I could have um, opted for a harder route, and I chose the easy route on that. And because of that, my experience has been largely positive. Um, Outside of my congregational settings, of course, I'll occasionally show up to do a wedding or at a hospital or, you know, for a funeral or something like that. And I'll say, hi, I'm Kat. I'm the priest. And there's a, you're the priest? (laughs) You're a little girl. Um, But there, I am. And and that's who I am and why I'm there. Um, I think that certainly the experiences of my male colleagues versus my experience are sometimes different because of gender. It took me a long time to get used to the fact that um, serving at the altar and speaking from a pulpit is a visual medium. And so for the first couple of years when it was a Sunday morning, and I had uh, preached or presided in some capacity. And then in the reception line afterwards, people would talk about my hair or what I was wearing or something. I found it really disconcerting. I thought, I just was talking about life and death, and you're asking me about my earrings. Uh, And I got around to the reality that when one is up there, when one is in the pew and looking towards the front of the church, you are watching the people and you are looking at them. And when I embraced that a church service is a visual and auditory and multi-sensory experience, and I am part of the visual panorama up there, I got over it. And I have female colleagues who are very um, firm about the fact that nobody can talk about what they look like and that that isn't welcome. It doesn't bother me at this point. I still think it's curious. I still think that it probably doesn't happen to my male colleagues. But given that people have been watching me for 75 minutes, of course they're going to notice when I got a haircut. It was different last week. Um, It is sad for me that within the Christian family – my ordination is not necessarily recognized because of my gender. If I am in a uh, Roman Catholic or Orthodox or some um, strains of Protestant settings, I am not an ordained person in that setting by virtue of my gender. But it is no sadder to me that that is not recognized than the fact that My baptism isn't recognized in certain settings because I was baptized as an infant, 
and I don't have an adult conversion experience, and I don't have a born-again experience. I choose to be born again and recommit my life to faith every day. But the fact that I had an infant baptism versus an adult baptism um, excludes me from different branches of Christianity as well. So is it hard not to be recognized as a clergy person in settings? Sure. But it's sadder to me not to be recognized as a fellow Christian. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Kat Benakis. Reverend Benakis is an Episcopal priest in the Chicago area and is the author of the recent book, Bubble Girl, An Irreverent Journey of Faith, published in 2013 by Chalice Press. The title of the book is Bubble Girl, and you have a chapter in the book of the same name. And in that chapter, you are very frank about some of the emotional challenges that you have struggled with. And I wonder if you'd be willing to explain to our listeners what you meant by the title Bubble Girl. Sure. The the title comes from an experience uh, that perhaps the listeners have had also, uh, something like it. I, I was hosting a party at my house, and uh, so therefore I knew everyone who was at the party because I was the host and it was at my house. And I had an interaction with um, one of our guests where I just felt alone in the midst of an interaction. And it happens to me all the time where I'll say a joke that flops or I say something in conversation that the other person doesn't pick up or somehow things move along. And all of a sudden, I'm in a situation where I should be at my social best. This should be the most integrated that I'm ever going to be. And I feel completely alone. And it's as though um, one of those plastic vacuum tubes that they used to have to put your money in the bank deposit drive-up window descends around me or like I'm in a bubble. And I am in a room of people that are familiar to me, and I am completely on my own. And it is the most condemning sense of loneliness I know because – It's as though it's never going to be better than this. And even here, I'm alone. And in the chapter, I talk about how if I can pause in those moments of absolute panic that I am always going to feel this alone, sometimes I'm able to hear something like the voice of God say, I know you're sad and I know you're scared. Just stay at the party. And generally, if I can get myself to stay at the party, it's better by the end of the night. And there's this wonderful part in the Gospel of John uh, that's John's version of the Last Supper story. And Jesus is with his buddies. He's with his friends. And John is the only gospel that uses the term friends there. He's with his goombas. And he's trying to explain to them what's going to happen. And he says... Uh, I've come from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. But don't worry. I'm going to leave you the parakletos, the spirit of remembering, the spirit of reminding. And he says different versions of the coming from, going back, going to leave. And nobody is catching on to what he's saying, not even the friend with whom he's closest. And when I read this story, I can feel Jesus getting more and more frustrated. And Jesus 
ingratiates himself to me in that story of here, this God human who walked on the earth was with his friends, with the people he most loved, and he felt alone too. And he was in some sense explaining to them, but in some sense reminding himself that he was part of something bigger. And maybe when I am most alone in a social setting, I'm part of something bigger too. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is pastor and writer Kat Banakas, the author of Bubble Girl and a Reverent Journey of Faith. Reverend Banakas is a bivocational pastor who divides her time between work in the church and the world of nonprofit fundraising. Her book, Bubble Girl, also plays two roles. It is both a spiritual memoir and an introduction to theology. You can find out more about Reverend Banakas and her book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is pastor and writer Kat Banakas, the author of Bubble Girl and a Reverent Journey of Faith. Reverend Banakas is a bivocational pastor, which means she divides her time between work in the church and the world of nonprofit fundraising. Her book, Bubble Girl, also plays a dual role. It's both a spiritual memoir and an introduction to theology. You can find out more about Reverend Banakas and her book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. I was very taken with the imagery you used and the conclusion of the book, and I will admit I got a little weepy when I got to the last pages. You describe your ordination process as a priest in the Episcopal Church, and a lot of the folks that you've introduced us to throughout the book in the previous chapters seem to be there at your ordination. And they participate in the ceremony, some of them do. But more than this, you use the language that it felt something like a prom scene at the end of the movie, which I I thought was really, really apt. But I also caught that there was a lot of wedding imagery there. At least there Mm -hmm. seemed to be a lot of wedding imagery for me. You you talk about standing at the top of the aisle and walking down the aisle towards the altar and those sorts of things. And I, I wonder if perhaps maybe that's also how it felt for you, that becoming a priest in the Episcopal Church was kind of like a marriage, kind of like a wedding, giving yourself wholly with your vulnerabilities and your strengths to this institution. And I, I just, I'm interested in your reflection on that because that really struck me at the end of the book. Well, there certainly are similarities in that insofar as it's a moment in which I was taking public vows and uh, was committing myself to this life and to this commitment and taking on this role and this fidelity to this role. And uh, when I when I got to the church the day of my ordination, um, my friend and rector came in and she said, well, aren't you a spectacular little bride of Christ? And so, <laughs> I mean, certainly there is a lot of wedding imagery in it, and, and one is uh, committing themselves and taking vows. Um, certainly people within uh, the Roman Catholic tradition, some of them will wear a wedding band uh, of having been wed to Christ in that ceremony. Um, I am blessed and lucky that in my tradition, I don't have to make that choice um, to lifetime singlehood and, you know, have the opportunity to to marry and, and be a spouse itself. Um, but there is very much that sense of, an entire community present to witness 
vows being taken and committing as a community to support you in that. And that is an evergreen element of what um, public rights are in the church. It's the same sort of um, public commitment and agreement that happens in baptism. It's the same public agreement that happens in confirmation and in weddings um, and in ordinations, that there is a person or people standing in the front and saying, I think I'm called to do this in this situation. And all of the religious community present agrees and agrees to support you in that. And I don't think that uh, there's anything quite like that. And and being upheld by a community so that you're not taking vows alone. You're not taking the vows of a life of faith in baptism. You're not taking vows of recommitment in uh, confirmation or recommitment. In ordination to be a specific role in marriage to be a specific role to another person, in none of those is one alone. You are affirmed by the community, and the community commits to uphold you and to help you in your fidelity to those vows. Well, now that you're looking back, you've been through the process, you've you've cataloged the process in this wonderful book, and now you're standing, uh, having been ordained and having served uh, in a church, what is your favorite part of being a priest? Oh, I love so much of it. That is a really hard one. Um, my favorite part intellectually is preaching in that I have uh, this rich history of text and debate and disagreement and the present day and the community that I get to preach to and all of those three things come together in 12 minutes uh, or 1,200 words in my case. And that's a fantastic challenge that I love uh, day to day. Um, But mostly I adore being part of the rhythm of congregational life that happens day over day and week over week and year over year as we try so hard together And with each challenge that comes up in the world, we are called into the challenge of the day and to figure out how to be loving and work for justice in that situation. And that it is perpetual and we show up and we try together. And to be part of that effort is an incredible honor that I am grateful for every day. Well, Catherine Banakis, I've very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much, David. Reverend Catherine Banakis is an Episcopal priest in the Chicago area and is the author of the recent book, Bubble Girl, An Irreverent Journey of Faith, published in 2013 by Chalice Press. In addition to her work for the church, Reverend Banakis has had a long career in the nonprofit sector, working as a lobbyist, a financial officer, and a fundraiser. She chronicles these career shifts as part of her book. She joined us in the studio here in Chicago. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part two of our interview with Catherine Banakis. You can listen to part one of the interview, which aired last week, at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you'd like to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. 
we're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. Even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore them all just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, Mary Morrison has a review of the BBC sci-fi series Orphan Black. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. I have a lot of respect for television series with strong female leads. Now, while I was never really able to get into Alias, my wife and I are huge fans of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The issues that a good science fiction series is able to raise about power, gender roles, and the nature of femininity makes for a lot of good conversations at our household. While I haven't yet seen the BBC series Orphan Black, I have a feeling that I'm going to like it, especially since it seems to offer not just one, but nearly a dozen strong female leads. Our summer intern, Mary Morrison, offers this review. This review contains spoilers. For a second year in a row, Orphan Black's Tatiana Maslany was snubbed an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series. While incredibly talented, you could argue she doesn't exactly fit the awards criteria because she isn't just a lead actress. Sure, she stars as Sarah Manning, a former con artist on the run, but she portrays a series of clones, 11 total at the end of the second season. Maslany isn't just the show's lead actress. She's a sporting actress several times over, effectively carrying the entire plot. Orphan Black follows a group of human clones dubbed Project Leda after the Greek myth that led to the birth of Helen of Troy. The women were unaware they were clones, their DNA was patented, and that they were scientifically studied, normally by a parent or significant other. Their inception was part of a movement entitled Neolution, which promotes scientifically directed evolution, essentially a modern eugenics movement. Working against the Neolutionists, a secret group called the Prolethians find and assassinate the clones because they believe they are an affront to God. Sarah Manning stumbles into the commotion when she steals the identity of another clone. Working together, a group of clones form the Clone Club, to fight both for their individual freedom from scientific study and their safety. As the series continues, Maslany's most moving performance is in the role of Helena, who was raised in a Prolethean covenant in Ukraine. Over the course of two seasons, Helena transforms from the psychopathic clone killer to an empathetic character. She, of course, remains mentally unstable, but justifiably so. The nuns who raised her believe she was a product of the devil and abused her. Two seasons isn't nearly enough time to heal 30 years of manipulation and torment at the hands of the Prolethians, but Helena becomes an underdog hellbent on revenge. Her vengeance is often in the form of a Dante-esque contrapasso, like blinding the nun that made her see darkness inside herself and burning the ranch of the polygamists who forcibly impregnated her in the hopes of creating a holier child. Throughout the show, Prolethians often quote Psalm 139 to display humans' innate godliness. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Helena is that fear, and it makes for wonderful, compelling television. I am constantly amazed at Maslany's acting range, both physically and vocally. 
Each character, from Helena to the alcoholic soccer mom Allison, is incredibly unique and nuanced. Her accent work is flawless, ranging across Europe and the Americas. The only clone that seems to be a misstep is Tony, a trans man. While his character is conceptually interesting, he was an overreach for both Maslany's acting abilities and the production team. Both his appearance and his mannerisms were unconvincing. But that was only one minor mistake. Orphan Black is wonderfully shot and edited. Often, I forget I'm mainly watching one actress talking to herself. Some moments are a little gimmicky, especially the four-clone dance party in the season finale, but the fact they can pull it off is amazing. What I find most interesting about Orphan Black is its place in the genre of science fiction as a whole. As a religious woman, I find myself often doubly shut out of a genre that largely revolves around secular men. However, Orphan Black focuses on the relationship between these female clones and dispels the common sci-fi trope of secular science triumphing over a rational religion. Instead, the personal morals of the clone club stand in the middle of the two extremes. The series uses the juxtaposition of fact and faith to explore the bigger themes of nature versus nurture. For example, fundamentalist religion causes Helena's ruthlessness, but extreme scientific pursuit created her foil, the clone Rachel, who was raised as an experiment. She was fully aware she was being monitored and forcibly continued medical examinations of the other clones. While Helena and Rachel's upbringings were incredibly different, both of their extremisms led to an intense brutality. Therefore, religious fundamentalism is disparaged, but so is a scientific lack of compassion. Sarah and the Clone Club must find a middle ground that protects themselves and their families. The show champions reason and tolerance, proving that nothing is truly orphan black or white. Mary Morrison is our summer intern. She's a rising senior at Swanee, the University of the South, where she's editor-in-chief of the campus newspaper, The Swanee Purple. She reviewed the BBC series, Orphan Black. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios here in Chicago. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and Mary Morrison did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Alexander Badenoch, and our intern is Mary Morrison. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Please join us.